bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier days I wouldn't want it any other way Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host Corinne Nidja and this week on the show I was blessed to speak to the lovely Dr. Ash Nayati who is a neuropsychologist and Ash, if you are a long time fan of this show, Dr. Ash was on the show way back in episode eight of the podcast. In that episode, we were, it was titled Neuropsychologist Dr. Ash Nayati Shares How to Move Out of Autopilot to Change Almost Anything. So in that episode, we were talking about neuropsychology, what autopilot is, obviously, how to take in control of our habits is the key to taking control of our lives, steps to breaking free of autopilot. And she listed all the steps, which was great for if you're someone who feels like you're stuck and can't stop perpetually making the same poor choices in your life over and over again. We talked about change and how to make change, which is, I guess, the follow on from moving out of autopilot. You are making change. We talked about Dr. Ash's own health improvements that she's noticed since transitioning to veganism and a bit about her husband as well. And we also talked about what she eats, how to go vegan, her tips on how to go vegan. And you can, before we begin this episode, you can also find her at social media handle vegan neuropsychologist and at revolutionme.com.au. Ash is an incredible animal rights activist, an incredibly powerful speaker on the subject of animal rights. She is such a great communicator, as I mentioned in this podcast. I love hear, following her on Facebook and hearing her speak during her live videos on a wide array of topics. Even if you're not vegan, she is just such a thoughtful eloquent, articulate speaker and an incredible educator on the subject of mental health and brain health and everything in the umbrella of her expertise, which is in neuropsychology, but she's also very passionate in the area of animal rights, as I mentioned. So she's just a great speaker across all those platforms. In this episode in particular, she is talking about, we are talking about dealing with negative emotions such as anger, anxiety and grief, establishing healthy boundaries with non-vegan family members. We're also talking about some mental health strategies to improve our mental health and on a day-to-day basis and diet and how it impacts upon our mental health and brain function and We also talk about sleep hygiene and cognitive impairment, the gut microbiome. We had a huge chat. And lastly, we ended the last question we were talking about was a little follow-on from the part three-part series we had last week and the two weeks prior to that, which was on raising vegan kids. She gave her three best tips for raising vegan kids at the end of this podcast because she has two beautiful boys herself. But then she finished with her top tips for managing negative emotions such as stress, anxiety, grief and all those things. So it was a really fascinating chat and I hope you really enjoy it. So please, here she is, Dr. Ash Nayati. Thank you, Ash. Hello, Dr. Ash. How are you? Oh, hi, Corinne. It's so good to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. You were episode 
eight. Eight or something, I think. Eight. Mm. Eight. The original top first ten. Old school. <laughs> you must feel special because I hunted out the first ten. From... Oh, I've, absolutely. <laughs> I and I'm, so hum- I'm very humbled to be back as well, so I appreciate it. I'm so glad to have you back. It's just wonderful to have you on the show. I've been following you, well, before you came on the show the first time and, yeah, support- I love your Facebook lives. I love the work that you do for animal activism. I love the work that you do as a neuropsychologist. I find you refreshing because I think for me, someone who wishes that I was excellent communicator, I think you're such an excellent communicator. Oh, thank you. So you're one of my role models of be like Ash. (laughs) That's very, very kind. I appreciate that. You're really, really great. Okay. So today on this episode, please scroll back and listen to the first episode because there's so many good things about change and mental health in that episode as well. So please scroll back to episode eight to listen to Ash talk all the way back then in 2000 and beginning of 2017, I think it would have been. Yeah, something like that. Mm. (gasps) Yay. Yes, please do. Um, But today we're going to talk about a few things. But first off, we're going to do a little tiny bit about raising vegan kids because Ash has two beautiful vegan little boys of her own little children of her own, and I'm sure she would have some great tips because she's in a different phase. I think that when you're a parent, you know, you get so caught up in your phase that you think that's the only age group that kids can be in. And Ash has a little newborn baby, newborn pretty much still. Nine months, so just out of newborn phase. Yeah, nine months In my mind, nine weeks. (laughs) (laughs) months, oh, my gosh. Yeah. A nine-month-old and a five-year-old, so... I think different, you know, different ages and different stages. There's different things that you face as a as any parent, but also as a vegan parent. So we're talking about that. We're talking about negative emotions, strategies for improving, or what the word would be here, but just dealing with the ups and downs and variables in our mental health as we move through each and every day, because things can be quite changeable all the time as a human in this life. We're going to be talking about diet and mental health and just and brain function, like how diet can impact on those two things. But we're going to start by talking about dealing with negative emotions. I don't know about you listening or you, Ash, but sometimes for me especially, and I was talking about it today at Vegan Playgroup, I was saying, you know, you go between being, and it's very, very tricky, and it happens often in vegan groups online, and it happens all the time. I think in today's 2019 world, we are so quick to anger and quick to react or overreact or to blanket a person as a bad person after one misdemeanor with a whole lifetime of good, excellent work. We're so quick to react, and... And myself, not. I feel like it's so. Like obviously, Facebook is designed to get us to react because if we're reacting, then we're clicking, we're liking, we're commenting, we're engaging with that platform. That's the same with Instagram and all other platforms. Want to get a reaction out of us because those reactions keep our bums on the seats and keep us engaging with those platforms. And most unfortunately, that. The algorithm has found that the negative reactions get the most bums on the seats. So they want us to react with hatred, anger, bitterness, sadness. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Outrage. They want us to react that way. And so I find, and more and more I'm feeling a, a pull to withdraw myself from those platforms because they're kind of changing who we are fundamentally as far as when we spend so much time in that outrage space, I think it becomes your default to go to, go to outrage as your place. And for me, in, in living in a non-vegan world, even though I meditate and I exercise and I eat healthy, I find the – I don't know whether it's – I find it really difficult because at the beginning when I – sorry to ramble, but – the beginning when I went vegan, I was really quick to outrage. 
you know, quick, quick to say, go vegan, go vegan, go vegan. I was really outspoken about it. I was desperate for everyone to be vegan. And then I kind of went through like a lull where I was like, look, that didn't work. No one wants to be told to go vegan in that way <laughs> with, with your rage and outrage and all those kinds of things. And then I just it was a lull. And then, but now I feel that it's been eight years from me nearly. And I feel a bit of that initial feelings coming back more easily just being like, oh gosh, do, do I need to say this again? You know, do I need to say the same story again? The animals are suffering. I'm so sick of you not going vegan fast enough and the people around me not going vegan fast enough. The animals need you to just just not take your time, not just go with the flow, baby steps, blah, blah, blah. They need you now. And I feel like there's a lot of vegans around me who you just get this feeling of like it's just like you're going to explode like a volcano, <laughs> like you're a volcano. But I don't want to feel that way because I know that that doesn't, help the cause and I know that it's not good for my mental health or my family or anyone. How do you move, how do you manage that? How do you manage this anger and these feelings of the anxiety and the anger that it gets about socialising with non-vegans and the anger at people refusing to go vegan when you're like, oh my gosh, you're a kind person who cares about environmental issues, who cares about animals. How can you not make this connection? Tell me, Ash, tell me, help me. It's infuriating. And I don't know if this will surprise you. It seems to surprise people when I tell them this. I'm extremely quick to anger. I get angry. I get frustrated. All the things that you mentioned, when people say things like animals don't matter as much as you care about humans first, my life's worth more than a chicken, when people say, but I like the taste of cow's milk and, you know, all of these things, I get extremely angry. And I think the difference is the difference between who I am now compared to a few years ago is uh, the anger's happening on the inside. I'm better able to deal with it on the inside rather than letting it bleed out into my interactions with other people. So being angry is okay. Being aggressive, being hostile, that's not okay. And there's a difference between the two. And I'm not perfect. I, I do, you know, my anger does spill over uh, sometimes, um, but certainly, you know, just a, a fraction of the amount of times I get angry, it's just a small fraction where, you know, it would be me speaking with a tone of voice that would come across as hostile or, you know, saying something that's sarc- – I get very sarcastic when I'm angry. And so it would be saying something very sarcastic. Um, so I think that it's uh, it's important to have realistic expectations. What are we expecting ourselves to be at this even keel just day in, day out, never having the ups and downs? Think about a heartbeat. Think about your brain waves. You know, if your heartbeat is even – your brain waves are even, you're dead, right? Life is ups and downs. And as uncomfortable as it is, there are going to be things in the world that stress us out, that frustrate us, that make us furious. And I don't think the goal, this is a bit maybe philosophical, but I don't think the goal of life is to avoid all of that. It's to get better at moving through it because the stuff that means something is exactly the stuff that's going to elicit those emotions. You know, why do we get angry? Because we care so much and because this is important because animals are dying and the planet's on the verge of collapse and people's health is, so many people's health is just in the toilet. This is important. We get angry because we care. So maybe reframing the way that we're viewing some of these emotions is helpful. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I think, I don't know, because I love words but I loved when you said that if our heartbeat and our brain waves are even that we're dead that we're dead because I think a lot of people do and myself included like even though I'm very aware that the highs and lows are the best parts of my life or have been best parts of my life personally and are mostly of other people's experiences as well I really think that's a really great way of reframing it because I do think that we and we are taught that the there are acceptable lows as well mm-hmm. that yep. I think that needs to 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 be altered, the dialogue around what's an acceptable low. Like anger isn't seemed to be isn't deemed in most circles to be an acceptable 
low, like you can be sad. If someone dies, you can be low sad with your grieving for a dead animal, a dead pet animal, <laughs> or you can be sad for grieving the loss of a family member, but you can't very often be accept it's not very accepted to be angry because of an injustice. For for those of us raised as girls. So for girls and we're so I I'm female, so um, I'm a woman. So as a as a child, for me, I was taught that the emotions that are acceptable versus not. So for girls it tends to be anger is unacceptable because little girls are good. They don't they're not supposed to get angry. They're meant to you know keep their dresses nice and neat and don't skin your knees. Whereas for boys, anger is the only acceptable emotion. A boy's not allowed to get sad. They're not allowed to get their feelings hurt. They're not allowed to get disappointed. They get told just suck it up and walk it off and get over it. So I 100% agree with you about um, the way that the way that we've learned, and even now in adulthood, a lot of women are really um, uncomfortable with anger, and it comes out in different ways. You know, it comes out in maybe more passive, aggressive ways, or the the anger. There's anger that's there, but then we pile like other emotions on top of it. It all gets mixed up. So there's like guilt. There's mum guilt, which I think a lot of that comes from anger. There's and and shame as well. So it's all very complex. It is really complex. And you're saying this, and I'm just thinking of a conversation I was reading this book on <laughs> tantra for menopause. <laughs> <laughs> just mm-hmm. for my own, I'm not even, I don't think I'm even reaching menopause yet. I haven't had any signs of it, but I just thought, I saw it in the bookstore and I thought, I want to know about this in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was from the bookstore library. And, but anyway, I was talking to my mom about, because I was reading it at her house and just reading her, you know, telling her about what I was reading. And she was just, you know, oh, she wasn't actually as shocked as I was. I thought she might be at the book I was reading. Talking about that a lot of women, like in my own, education with women's circles and women's health and those types of things, just from my own curiosity, talking about that PMS, often it's worse for the women who suppress their anger the most, that they have these big rage outbursts once a month. And then when they get menopause, they have much more, this is just my own observation and research and reading about how that those big reactions tend to come out at those times for people. And I found that like, like for my mom, she never was angry. You know, she sucked everything down, but then she had such a tumultuous time during menopause and before her period. And I think probably a lot to do with suppressing everything. And then I don't know. I don't know. It's just my own thoughts on it, but I'm interested. Yeah. I'm fascinated in how it works. I mean, I think biochemically that makes sense as well. Um, And if we're talking about suppressing all emotions, I mean, ang- even just suppressing anger, when we're angry, um, the stress response is activated. That's the fight, fight, or fl- fight, flight, or freeze response is activated. And if you don't ha- deal with your anger, if you just suppress it, then that stress response remains active. Those hormones remain circulating through our body. And when we're in that state chronically, it has tremendous impacts on our, like, our cardiovascular health, our brain health just general systemic inflammation um and so yeah i can there's there's definitely a link between our emotions um the way we're handling it and the hormone interplay um, within our bodies so for people who are listening who maybe aren't because most of us haven't been taught to i definitely wasn't taught to and not because my mum was like, I'm not going to teach you that, just because of the time I was born in, you know, the 80s, where most people weren't taught to manage their emotions or to express their emotions healthily or just feel (laughs) Mm. anything other than what was acceptable as far as this food is nice. How can we better, like what would be your tip for us to better manage when we feel anger rather than going straight to shame, which many of us do go, I feel ashamed, I was angry just then. How was it? What's a healthier alternative? There's two parts to this. So part one is to deal with the physiological response of anger and the second part is to deal with the psychological response. So I'll start with the first one. So as I said, when we're angry, we activate that stress response. We go into fight, flight or freeze mode. There are hormones going through your body that are doing things to your system, like your brain doing things to your heart, to your blood vessels. Those 
hormones, those stress hormones, the only way to really get rid of them is to work them off. So that's why you notice when people get angry, they pace around, um, they fidget with things. Sometimes, you know, some people like they throw things or they want to hit things. So getting, we we need to discharge the, um, the physiological response of anger. Think of it like a lightning bolt. Why does lightning happen? It's electrical discharge. So think of it like that. We're needing to just get that anger out. And if you know beforehand what your coping skills are, you're gonna, it's going to be much better than if you're in the heat of the moment and you're thinking, oh, shit, I need, to, I need to punch something, I need to punch something, what do I do, what do I do? So know in advance what are you going to do. So some people, you know, some people do boxing, some people they just – um, one of the things that I teach my children, for example, is just get a pillow and hit it against another pillow, or just put a pillow on the floor and hit that pillow. Go for it, go run around. Take you know taking kids outside for a run that's so useful for them. So anything that gets you active, and if you can't necessarily get outside and do something, just anything that's going that gets you moving. For some people, right, and for me as well, writing is helpful. Because when you really furiously write, it's pretty intense. It's quite physically demanding. If, if you've ever just written in anger, like written angrily, like you're, you're, you know, you've got the pen and you're venting your emotions onto the page, that can be really useful. So that's the first part, which is the physical aspect of anger. That's great. Thank you. And then the second part of it is the psychological, um, the psychological component. So... Anger, all emotions, anger's there for a reason. And because of the way that we're brought up, we often feel angry in situations where maybe a more, a, a more appropriate response would be guilt or would be sadness. So you need to find out what is actually underneath the anger and whether or not, um, whether or not it is true anger, I call it just anger meet just as in righteous is it just anger or is it something else going on so anger happens when an injustice has occurred so someone's cut you off in traffic you're waiting online at the post office and someone pushes in you witness animal cruelty these beautiful beings who've done nothing wrong being treated in such horrible ways all of these are various forms of injustices and anger is a natural and healthy response to that now, some people, to them, they get angry in response to perceived injustice. That's not really an injustice at all. So for some people, they see a person walking down the street in inappropriate clothing, and that makes them angry. Now, that's not that kind of righteous anger because we're all entitled to wear whatever we want. It's more that their anger in that situation has come from an expectation that it is, or a judgment rather, of how people should dress. And often if you peel that back, there's probably sadness or something underneath because maybe that's something that was denied to them when they were growing up. Or think about anger. A lot of, a lot of men have this. I'm sorry to be a bit making this grand sweeping statement, but for a lot of men, they, they get really angry when women are outspoken. And it's not because of, that's not a just righteous kind of anger. That's the kind of anger because they've got this expectation that women are supposed to be docile and obedient and compliant and women, they're not supposed to be intelligent and have smart things to say. So they come across an outspoken woman, they get angry, but nothing wrong has actually occurred. There's no injustice there. It's a perceived injustice because of this unrealistic expectation or this archaic belief that they have about women. So once the only way you can get to that level of introspection is if you get that physiological anger out of the way in the first place because when you're in that stress mode, that fight or flight response, you really can't think logically. So you need to get all that out of your system. Then you can sit down and you can with, you know, you can write or meditate or go for a walk or whatever it is you do to get clarity and then really ask yourself some tough questions. What's going on here? What is it specifically that's caused me to feel angry? What has set off my anger in this situation? 
So depending on what the answer to that question is, you then come up with an appropriate solution. So it might be changing expectations, changing beliefs. I know it sounds easy, but it, it is possible. Um, changing beliefs, changing expectations. Um, it could be in situations where it's that real righteous anger. It could be being angry and acknowledging the anger at the injustice. And it could be psychologically venting all of those thoughts, maybe venting to someone who understands or maybe venting it onto paper and then deciding, okay, I'm not going to be powerless in this situation. What can I do to help? So in the case of animal exploitation, what can I do to help? I can be vegan. I can not contribute to exploitation. I can share this message as best I know how. These are my strengths. How can I somehow utilize my strengths in order to be an advocate for this? So there's different avenues you can take depending on what the source of it is. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry that was so wordy. No, it was great. It was great. Thank you. I think that they're all, it's a really, really, they're both really, I, I'd never really broken it down into so simply in myself, which is why I got you on the show, was that physiological response and then the psychological. So like moving it out and then trying to process it to find the the root cause. And it's really funny because I just had this experience the other day. I was really angry. And then when I unpacked it, I was like, oh, my God, I'm angry for so many reasons that aren't necessarily this little tiny snippet of what's happening in my actual life. And it was really, I think if you haven't done something like that, it can seem really, so I'm using the word really a lot and now I'm going to use it more because I'm noticing it. <laughs> it can just seem difficult to do if you haven't done it before. But I th- yeah. I was t- writing about it, like you said, um, actually. I was just writing in a message to someone and I was writing about it and then I was like, oh, my God, it's so many other, in the writing I unpacked so many Mm. vines off this seed of anger that I had and I was like oh I'm grieving and I'm sad about this and this is happening and all this stuff stuff is happening you know I was partly angry about my multiple sclerosis I was partly angry about a friend's death I was partly angry about raising my kids in a non-vegan world when Mm. they're more likely to get multiple sclerosis and it's just a big thing and I was crying and I was just like, oh, my gosh, there's so much underlying that initial rage feeling that I had and hurt yep. feeling that I had. So thank you for pointing that out. And on to that, just following on, I thought that we just talk a bit about how diet can help with managing our emotional state, our mental health and our brain function, if that's okay with you. Sure. There's a, this is quite a big topic and it's uh, becoming increasingly, increasingly uh, important and as we know more about it. So um, I guess I'll touch on two things. One is brain health and the other one is the role of chronic inflammation. Um, so brain health, generally speaking, I, I mean, hopefully your, your viewers are well aware that our bodies are not static. We're constantly regenerating cells as old cells die off and um, we're constantly renewing and replacing cells. And with um, with our brain, the efficiency of our brain, a lot of it is dependent on the, the state of our physical body. So anything that's going to negatively affect your heart and lungs and circulation are also going to negatively affect your brain. So keeping a general level of physical health is going to obviously um, impact on our brain health. So uh, and partic- in particular, omega-3 supplementation or omega-3 um, fatty acid consumption is really important. And omega-3s have been in the news a lot. Often people think that uh, fish and aquatic animals are the only source of omega-3, which is not true for many reasons. Uh, I guess just very very brief summary, I mean, most fish are farmed now, so they're not even fed the kind of diet that's necessary for them to produce omega-3. And then because of 
environmental pollutants and other things, if you are getting fish that do contain omega-3, you're also getting a huge dose of a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't want to be ingesting. So fish um, is just generally not a good source of omega-3. Also, um, animal flesh is inflammatory. It's pro-inflammatory in the body. So it's kind of like saying, hey, I'm a bit thirsty. I'm going to drink this cup of coffee (laughs) to sate my thirst because, okay, you might temporarily do that, but the caffeine is going to leach even more. Um, it's going to dehydrate you even more. So um, omega-3s and plant-based sources of omega-3s, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts, uh, green leafy vegetables contain omega-3s as well. So there's plenty of plant sources um, available. And the second thing which I, which I briefly, briefly mentioned is just general inflammation. So, uh, And a lot of that is linked to diet because um, of the role that our gut bacteria Um, our microbiota rather, um, the role that that plays in inflammation. So most of our body is not actually us. It's bugs. It's bacteria. We're just carrying around with us. We're mostly made up of bacteria. And these bacteria, they, uh, especially the ones that live in our intestine, they consume the food that we eat. And then as a result of that, they produce certain chemicals now some of them produce b12 for instance so um that's that's obviously a good thing for them to produce um there's other types of chemicals that the that our microbiota produce um and some of them are actually directly linked with cancer bowel cancer for example so that's why one of the reasons why a diet that's high in processed animal flesh is linked with cancer, red meat and colorectal cancer, it's a lot of it is um, directly linked to this mediatory function of our gut bacteria. So when you eat the kinds of foods that are, that lead to good gut bacteria, that lead to those positive chemicals or those healthy chemicals rather, um, we're more likely to will reduce the inflammation in our body, and that's going to lead to better general health. And as it turns out. The foods that are the best ones for your gut bacteria, they're whole foods, they're high in fibre, they're low in saturated fat, not animal products, not processed, not refined, whole foods plant, whole foods and plants. Obviously, I love that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's fascinating when you talk about, and I, I loved that you mentioned that, you talk about circulation and you know, heart and, you know, lung, respiratory circulation and how if you have issues in those areas, if your diet is impacting on those areas, obviously it would also be impacting upon your brain health. And I think that we're so bombarded with information about heart heart disease because it's our number one cause of death, but we also have a heap of people in nursing homes with early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, those kinds of conditions and who are having, or even not even those cases, but minor earlier cases where you're noticing people in their 50s, 60s, probably more forgetful, more disoriented, more easily confused. And we just still aren't having enough of a conversation about that. So I love that you raised that there. Is that something that you see a lot in your work? It's been a long time since I worked with older adults. Most of my work is in paediatrics at the moment, so that's sort of at the um, opposite end of the age scale. Um, However, what you're describing um, is what's known as mild cognitive impairment. So it's those early symptoms of where mm, we're not sure if this is a degenerative process like Alzheimer's, but yes, this person's definitely experiencing some impairment that's just beyond what we would expect for a person that age. So we cognitively, we peak in our 20s. It depends on our level of overall health, but generally speaking, it's like in our 20s, we mid-20s to mid-30s is when we have our cognitive peak. Um, and, well, this is such a generalisation, though, So because it really depends on our physical health. So what one thing that neuropsychologists do is when we work with people, we determine, okay, this person's complaining of forgetfulness. Is this the normal forgetfulness that we might see in someone who's 40 years old or is there more to it than that? So that's one one thing neuropsychologists do is to determine what's 
possibly pathological versus what's um, what's typical for that age. But then, you know, we need to think about as well what is normal because uh, normal is based on the rest of society and it's not like the general health of society is that great to begin with. So what can actually be a real problem for someone? It might be normal on paper. When we look at tests, it might be, oh, okay, this is typical for a 40-year-old, but it could be causing someone real uh, real functional impairment. It could, if their line of work is, if they're in a certain line of work where they need to remember uh, lots of facts and figures or, um, you know, if it's impeding in their day-to-day function some other way, Maybe they're a teacher. They need to constantly remember new every year new names, new faces, and they're just not able to do that. Yes, it's. I find because I have both grandparents with Alzheimer's, grandmothers, that it is an area where I have been really fascinated because I want to prevent that from myself. You know, forgetting who my children are, forgetting who my husband is, forgetting everyone that I love and care about. I really don't want that to happen, and so. I was very glad that I, I, I found this way of eating where it seems like that is a really protective way. But I also know that stress is a huge, plays a huge role as well and obviously trauma and those kinds of things. So with stress... Sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation is a, a huge one as well. So for someone from me, I'm an insomniac. I think the kid, the kids... I was an insomniac when I was young and then was fine when I had chronic disease because I just slept all day. And then since kids... But all the regular the, the breastfeeding for ever and the and the broken sleeps for a long, long, long time. I found that now I'm just back with insomnia since I finished breastfeeding last year, and it's really tricky. So I, I guess what I wanted to know would be what would be some strategies that you have maybe for people who are finding it difficult to get a good night's sleep or who chronically stressed for whatever reason just to tr- as a ways that they can either get more sleep or calm themselves yeah well if if the sleep is anxiety related then um th- there are, i'd say it's important to address the anxiety and i don't necessarily mean medication that might be an option for some people but there's definitely lifestyle changes that can be made so um so sleep th- Sleep hygiene, you've probably heard that term before, that's quite important. And different things impact on different people's sleep. So, you know, generally speaking, we know that caffeine is something that can be, that can really interfere with sleep. Eating a lot of processed sugar late at night, that can impact people's sleep. Sleeping in brightly lit or noisy rooms, um, not even with lights on, just the ambient light if you live in the city and you've got just the ambient light coming in, that can be quite disruptive. Screens, anything with a blue light, that can be disruptive. And even if you've got one of those filter thingies on your phone so that it's not blue light anymore, even that can still be quite disruptive for some people. So, you know, I'd recommend playing around with these. Some of them are going to work and some of them won't. In terms of the anxiety, again, huge generalisation here, what what keeps people up is often the ruminating it's the thoughts going through over and over and over again that you just can't seem to switch off so writing I always go back to writing but just because it's something that's so useful for me writing them down can be helpful so that you're getting them out of your head and onto the page so it frees up your brain the other thing some people do is they actually have a dedicated time of day well before bedtime where they worry. They set it in their alarm clock, 5.30 this afternoon, I'm just going to sit here and just worry about all the things. And that's just their dedicated worrying time. So they just allow themselves to worry without judgment. And that's the time when the timer goes off and then they're done. Anything they need to worry about, they write it down and they save it for their next session of worrying. So a few people have told me that that's helpful for them. So that can be something worthwhile wow i've never thought to do that but yeah i mean and all you can do is give it a go it might not work uh, but i think i think it's worth trying you know give it a week just try doing it for a week and test it out another another one um as well is with oh my gosh it just completely fell out of my head what i was saying um there was a, there 
with oh yes, yeah, so with the um, thoughts that are going over and over again. Sometimes if we if those thoughts are taking a particular turn, if it's like worrying about what if, what if, um, in the dedicated worrying time, if you play out those consequences, so it's like, okay, next week I've got to go to this thing, I don't know anybody, what's it going to be like? And we just often just for that entire week we sit with this low grade, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to know anyone, I'm going to feel so awkward, people will think I'm so weird. In your dedicated worrying time you can actually talk yourself through that and go, okay, so what would be the worst thing that would happen? If that thing were to happen, what then? And we're almost putting ourselves in that situation. Um, And then sometimes we come through the other end and we realise actually what I'm worried about, it's not that big of a deal because if I get there and I don't know anyone and I'm not having fun, I can just leave. So sometimes the worrying comes from not allowing ourselves to fully explore what our worries are. We kind of worry about worrying. Absolutely. And I think that so many of us, like, you know, worst case scenario, I used to have this thing with Rinji. I used to say, oh, my gosh, if, you know, I keep fantasizing that we're going to end up in some, well, I used to always say, I watched Breaking Bad a lot when I was after after I had Iggy. I said, we're going to end up in Jesse's house. It's going to be a messy, we're eating like cheesy poofs and just this miserable life, you know, when I was worrying about money or worrying about where, where, where our life was headed. And I just kept fantasizing about this. And then I was like, well, what's the worst that could play out? As you know, like, how could that fantasy play out? I think it's a really, really good thing to do because both of us were like, well, I'm sure we'll figure it out if we end up in a cracked house with them. <laughs> yeah. And it's generally not that you wake up all of a sudden wake up one morning and you've been transported out of your home and you're in the crack house you know it's kind of like if you know if you know what you don't want then you know what you do want and if you remain focused on what you do want then day by day because ending up in the crack house is something that happens not overnight but that happens a few years down the track so if every day you're resetting your navigation system and you go okay making sure I'm not doing the things that are going to lead me to end up in the crack house and instead going to end up where I want to go. Not that I had a problem with drugs and not that I want to shame people who are in, in like living in a crack house, but that was just my like, just a fear, I imagine if that, you know, it wasn't, that was my, if things went terribly, this is where we're going to end up and that would be awful. But yeah, I think it is really good because you don't, you don't, you don't make, you don't end up in a crack house from one, well, often from one poor decision. You make it from daily poor decisions that eventually lead you there so yeah and sorry Corinne just one more thing I was going to say as well which is to be to to take a a step back from some of the thoughts that we're having Um, and it's so a word for this is um, people call it like your executive functions or people call it being you know the metacognition where you're thinking about your thinking and that can be really in fact, that's quite vital, I think, to addressing anxiety. So imagine this. You imagine um, you're in a plane and the plane takes off. And, you know, when you're sitting on the tarmac, you just, oh, yeah, you see the airport. There's a whole bunch of planes over there. And that's the perspective you have. But once you take off and you're in the sky, all of a sudden you realize, oh, yeah, there's the airport. But there's this beautiful, you know, fields and paddocks over there. And there's the city over there. And there's the ocean over there. And you get this perspective that's very different when you're up high. And you can, and and it's almost like when you can have that kind of perspective on your day-to-day worries, you sort of recognise, okay, right now I'm in the midst of it. It's yes, it's turmoil, it's hard, and I guess this can relate to the parenting stuff you were talking about before. You know, it's so difficult. Um, life is just hard, and I'm just struggling to get through every day. But the bigger picture is that in a few years' time, this isn't going to be an issue or in a few months' time or in a few weeks' time, this isn't going to be an issue. The thing I'm worrying about today, I'm probably not going to be worrying about it next week. Or even just even to take a step higher, which is, oh, I've noticed that when I don't sleep well, I really get these ruminative thoughts about ending up in a, ending up eating, sitting on the couch eating cheese puffs all day. Gee, I've noticed that about myself. And, oh, yes, I didn't sleep well last night. So no wonder I'm having these thoughts again. So there's lots of ways to do that. You want to really um, de, 
diffuse yourself from your thoughts. So it's kind of like taking a step back. So some people practice meditation, some people do yoga, some people just go for a walk and they're just present and they're not, they just go for a walk and they're not listening to music or your podcast or anything like that. They're just being present and um, appreciate, you know, practicing gratitude, for instance, it helps to, um, it helps to change that perspective. And I say gratitude like it's a throwaway thing, but in fact there's thousands of studies now showing how beneficial gratitude is to our mental health. And it's so easy to incorporate that into your day. Now, I, firstly, I don't have the cheesy foof nightmare fantasy anymore. That was a, that was a different grin. <laughs> but um, yeah. but uh, that was 2012 <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was breastfeeding and delirious. Uh, mm. The gratitude thing, we just do it every night at dinner. When we're having dinner, we just walk around the table. Well, not walk, go around the table and just share, just list as many as we can. We used to say three, but then we were like, I've got more than three today. So now we list an unending amount. Because if your hands can work, that's one thing. That's pretty awesome. Not everyone's hands can work. That's true. And it's so great that you do it. You can do this with your kids. And, I mean, they're, they're, they're very grown up, but they're still so young. And so, you know, even young kids, you can ask them, what was your favourite part of today? Or you're leaving a friend's house. What was the favourite part of what, you know, the experience that we just had? Um, and even if the kids are too young to, you know, if they're maybe not talking yet or they're, they're too young to really understand that, then modelling it ourselves, you you know, you, you get off the train, you say, wow, it was so much fun to ride the train with you today. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. And it has like Theo's four now and now he's really doing it properly. But for years it was just the three of us doing it while he was a baby and then he's had to just saying random funny things that would make us laugh, <laughs> like just sounds. You know, now he gets it, although sometimes he often – Theo's just a rebellious streak nature. So often he goes, nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I say, nothing, not even cuddles with mum this morning. Yeah, I'm grateful for cuddles. Not even, and I just list all the things <laughs> that he had did that day. And he goes, "Yeah, I'm grateful for that." <laughs> you know, like yeah. And how and how awesome that you have a child who's not so terrified to say something contrary to his parents that he's you know so comfortable in saying, "I'm just not going to do this right now." <laughs> I love he that. Regularly, so he regularly nothing <laughs> yells nothing yeah. when I ask him his turn. <laughs> And Iggy does it and everyone else does it and he says nothing but then he softens and goes, all right, yes, you're right, this happened and this happened. And <laughs> But he likes to yell nothing to start it off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I know we don't have much time, so I just wanted two last questions to ask you. One is, and I think we'll just tie that in to the top tips, but one is going to be, I find it tricky when talking to people, and I'm th- I thought maybe some of the listeners would as well, when you're trying to negotiate, for instance, a lunch or a meeting with around with food in there with non-vegans and or even any kind of dietary dietary problem, and there's a bit of pushback from the family about what they want to eat or how they want what they want to bring or what they want to cook and then what they want to cook for you for instance like when when there's even it doesn't have to be specifically those instances but when there's a pushback i find that i immediately my, my immediate response is anxiety and to want to go into a cave and not talk to anyone again and not go to the thing and be have a little emotional tantrum about the whole thing. But when you're in those situations, because you're a better communicator than I am, I feel like it's my own belief. What what would you do in that instance? Like how do you respond when there's pushback from people in your life that you care about that about your veganism for instance? Most of the time, most of the time the there are good intentions behind it, I think. It doesn't come out that way a lot of the time it can sometimes it can just come out as other people's comments can be just really snarky or passive aggressive I do you know I try and remind myself that it does come from a good place you know they're just scared they're worried about change they want to do something for you but they just don't know how to go about it so 
Um, I think it can help just to try and remember, and I'm telling myself this as much as everybody, is just to remind ourselves that it's, it is coming from a good place. It's just not coming out that way. Um, so I think it's good to acknowledge that and to say it's so kind of you to want to bring something. Thank you so much for preparing this. Um, it, and so it's really to acknowledge the effort. I can see you put a lot of time into this. I can see you really tried here. Thank you so much. Um, and, and then it is to also say, and um, I just don't eat animal products. And you, whether or how, how much you delve into that, I guess it just depends on the situation. Uh, but it, it might be something like, um, thank you so much for offering me this cake that you've made. It looks like you've put in a lot of work to it. It does look quite amazing. Uh, I, I can see that um, I, I know that you, there's dairy in there or there's eggs in there. I actually don't eat animal products, so I'm going to say, no, thank you. I really appreciate you offering. And it's as simple as that. And sometimes the simpler, the better, because I find that when we, you know, sometimes we get a bit defensive about about our choices when we really don't need to be. If anyone should be defending their choices, it should be the people who are consuming products of animal exploitation. So having there's something quite elegant I find about just simply stating, I actually don't eat that. Thank you for offering. I'm not going to eat it. You know, and, and think about it like this. Imagine, um, imagine you had an anaphylactic allergy to an ingredient or if you were celiac or something and you had an actual, you know, a proper, quote-unquote, proper health reason to not consume it. Um, we would be so firm in our boundaries for that. We'll say, thank you so much. I actually don't consume gluten. I get really sick when I do because I have celiac disease. Thank you so much for offering it to me. And then if, even if people say, well, hang on, hang on, you don't, what, what, just have a little bit, just have a bit, it's not going to hurt you. And we'd say, actually, I don't eat that, thank you so much. And we would just repeat that line and just hold that line. And, you know, I, I don't think we really need to defend ourselves or justify our position. And people might ask and they say, well, hang on, why don't you eat eggs? And if someone were to say that to me, I'd say, um, I'd say look, um, eggs are from a chicken, we don't get them with the chicken's consent. It's an animal product, so um, I'm, I don't eat them. Simple as that. And some people can view that as being very judgmental, um, which I would say that that's I would say that's not being judgmental because judgmental is when you say um, it's it, it is when you say to a person you are wrong for X, Y, and Z. So so if it's, it is wrong to harm animals. I do think it's wrong to exploit animals. It doesn't mean the people who are doing that are themselves wrong. I think everyone's capable of change. So um, so I think stating our position, people can view that as being, oh, you're shaming people, you're judging people. That's not it at all. You're, you're co making commentary on your own decisions. And it's quite amazing what will happen when we demonstrate to others this is how you hold your boundaries. It gives them gives them some inspiration to do the same thing in their lives. Thank you. I have to say I'm an over-explainer, which just makes things just much, much, much worse. Yeah, I found that too, which is why I think simple is better. If they want to know more, they'll ask. And, and to be honest, there's nothing worse than someone who doesn't really want to know but us just putting in all of that effort and energy into explaining and they don't want to hear it. And because we keep explaining, then they get defensive and then they start reacting. They go into that stress response, that fight or flight, and you can't have a rational discussion in that mode. And so it becomes, oh, but, you know, lions and but plants have feelings and it just, when it heads down that road, you just know that it's just time to step away, <laughs> just time to step away. And there's probably times as well where if someone is tucking into a piece of cake that you know has got animal products in it, that's probably not the time to tell them about what happens to egg-laying hens or what happens to cows. It would be after that. So if they're sitting there eating and they go, why, why, what's so bad about eggs? It would be, look, I'm really happy to tell you. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to tell you. I'm not going to tell you right now. And the reason is because when someone is actually in the midst of doing it, they are going to feel so much shame, they will not be able to have empathy for the animals. It's, it's virtually impossible. Uh, so. I'm, that's a really, really good piece of advice because not that I, I, I honestly avoid this stuff like the plague in 
my life because I've had, you know, so many um, situations. It is a really good piece of advice about not talking to them about it when they're eating the thing because of the shame because I would never have thought of that. Yeah. And it's hard because sometimes I think to myself, well, if I told them right now, then maybe they'd stop eating it. And while that may be true, if they're already in the, if they're already in the midst of eating it and they stop, that product is going to go in the bin, right? So it's not actually helping the animals at that point. But also there was a bit of, I found for me, it sometimes came out of a bit of guilt because um, I thought, well, I need to constantly be advocating for animals. You know, every interaction needs to be my advocacy. Otherwise, I'm a bad activist. And that's not, I don't, I, I've now changed that because I think now um, a better approach is to understand the psychology of what is happening inside people's heads and to choose the moment when they can empathize. Like, don't try and convince someone to become vegan when they're in the midst of a tremendous amount of shame because they've got a dead chicken on their plate. And and a lot of advocacy, I feel, can be a bit like spray and pray. You know, you just do the same thing, just keep saying the same thing enough and hopefully it will land. I don't think that that's, a, that's necessarily a good approach. I think the better approach is to, you know, consider your audience, consider who you're speaking to. It's a different you're going to talk about different things with a 20-year-old man than you are with a 65-year-old woman. Um, if you're sitting over the dinner table versus if you're out going for a walk, doing something that's not food-related. So I think if you can be discerning about how you advocate, uh, I, I actually think it's a smarter way of doing it and it can, creates less angst for absolutely, us. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, last but not least, I just thought we would touch on this because – you have one little boy beside you and one little other boy out with his dad. Some thoughts on raising vegan kids, like perhaps just mm. the three quickest things that come to your mind about your own experience raising ve vegan kids specifically. Uh, the first would be to get informed about plant-based nutrition because it is much easier to have confidence in your decisions when you know the reasons behind it. Um, so not just from an ethical standpoint, but even from a health standpoint, it is far, a, a plant-based diet is far healthier for children than a standard Australian diet or even a meat-based diet. So the first one would be to get informed. Um, and I'm sure you've got a lot of good resources, Corinne, for, for, um, for parents who, who are interested in that. The second one I think is to, um, is to talk to your children about the ethical implications of food choices and all life choices, to be honest, because there's too much focus on, oh, vegan parents are forcing their beliefs on, on, on their children. That's not the case at all. We're actually teaching them really valuable lessons about caring for the vulnerable members of our community, not doing – we don't want to do things just because everybody else is doing them. We don't want to do things just because it's convenient or just because it's easy. There are bigger, bigger issues here. And talking, I think, connecting with the ethical implications is valuable because kids, they develop, the, the, the moral compass develops with the prefrontal cortex. So even a child who's Theo's age, four, can understand, okay, it's not okay to hurt others. Younger toddlers can understand that. It's not okay to hurt others uh, for no, especially for no reason when they haven't done anything to you. So this Second, so get informed, then connecting with the ethical um, aspects. And the third one is to be organised. <laughs> and this is really for when you go to those social events and birthday parties and things, uh, especially if it's a non, I'm talking about if it's a non-vegan birthday party, have things there so that your kids do not feel like they're missing out. So bring a cupcake so that when everyone else is having birthday cake, your kid still gets to have the cupcake. Bring, pack you know, a little lunchbox so that they've got the – and there's so many things now, right? Like there's vegan – there's nuggets with the plant meat and there's, you know, there's hummus and there's, crack, there's crackers and corn chips and lollies and there's all of these things that they're – you know, they're not everyday foods and certainly they're not necessarily the most nutrient-dense foods, but it's a birthday party and if it's a difference between your child wanting to consume the animal product – versus you having the option available for them to have the plant product, it is there for them. And they get to see they don't miss out. And the other kids 
as well, they get to see, wow, this kid's vegan and look, he can he can still eat Skittles or he can have all of these flavours of chupa chups or I've been pleasantly surprised that a lot of parents have been so like so good about making vegan alternatives or options be available at their kids' parties from my kids. Mm. And yep. as I, I, I'm always expect, expecting the worst <laughs> when it comes to what's going to be there, but I'm really, really surprised. And as they've gotten older, and I'm sure this, will be the, sure this will be the case for your family as well, what's been really surprising to me who was addicted to junk food as a kid, and that was the whole purpose of going to the party for me was the junk food, as my kids have been educated about the, you know, how foods affect their body and their mind and their ability to play, they just go to the parties to actually play and play with their friends. And they're not fixated on the party food table at all. Like, I'm not saying that they're not at all loving lollies because yesterday I asked Iggy what his happiest memory of his life was and he said, when Theo and I got rainbow lollipops. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, of all the things that happened in your life, that moment is his most favourite. So I'm not saying that he's just drinking kale, wheatgrass shots and playing with his friends and not thinking about junk food, because obviously he does love junk food, but he still now, he plays, he just assumes there won't be any food that he likes there much, apart from fruit, and he has that at home. So he plays. And for me, as someone who's been a food addict for my whole life, seeing my kids going to a party for playtime and not like me going to a party to see how many party parts I could fit into my mouth. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's awesome. I imagine that would be the same for you. Like if I actually have a respect for food and what it does for them. Mm. I mean, I, I, I will say that my children so far proving themselves to be quite food enjoyers, quite food connoisseurs, um, I, there, there's a, you know, often the, the first question will always be, is it vegan, you know, when we go to an event because they're still young enough that yeah, I go with them I to still, the still birthday parties and things. So and so it's just... Hyper-vigilant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's just, okay, these are the things that are vegan, these are the things that are not. But like you said, there are so many allergies as well these days, dairy and eggs, so it's very common for there to be uh, alternatives um, or for yeah, people yeah, to make yeah. those adjustments. My kids... They do still like food. They love food, very much love it. But I just found that they're not as, like I was, obsessed about it as I was as a kid, um, which I'm such a relief to me <laughs> to not be passing that down to them. That's awesome. So lastly, I guess we would go back to your expertise, which is neuropsychology. For your last three tips, sorry, I've taken an hour of your time, but your last three final tips, I know we didn't want to end quite on just vegan kids because that's not really your area of expertise. So I just thought from what we've been talking about, perhaps in relation to managing emotions or in relation to stress in particular, what would be your three biggest tips for people who are wanting to feel like they're more in control of their own mental health on the day-to-day -day basis? All right. So the first one will be to uh, educate yourself about emotions and what they're telling you. Every emotion tells you something different. So that might be expand, starting off by expanding your emotional vocabulary. So when someone says, someone says, oh, I just feel shit today, it's okay. What is it exactly? Are you feeling disappointed? Are you feeling hurt? Are you feeling angry? What is it exactly? And so when we can label the emotion, we that emotion tells us something. So if we're feeling sad, we need to do different things than if we're feeling angry or jealous or disappointed or hurt. So that would be my first tip. Um, my second tip would be to take like a kind of an inventory of your own uh, habits, what you do day to day, um, and really – sorry – We'll save that for number three. Number two would be to get clear on the kind of emotional states you'd like to experience in a day. So if you notice yourself feeling very angry constantly or feeling very depressed a lot, um, it would be to then ask yourself, well, how do I want to feel? Because that gives you a, something to aspire towards. And then the third thing would be to take that inventory. What is it about your habits that might be leading you in down a road that you don't want to go? So if 
For example, if anxiety is an issue and if you consume a lot of caffeine, you might want to try cutting back on the caffeine because it, it's quite well known that caffeine can induce anxiety in some people. I can't even have cacao or green tea. Yeah. For me, anxiety with all of them. Absolutely. And so that that can be quite a, a quite um, big link there. Another one can be um, feeling overwhelmed and sleep deprivation. So when we're tired, it's really hard, just hard to cope in general and everything feels like too much. And I'm experiencing this now because, I, you know, I have a nine-month-old and he's allergic to sleep. So, <laughs> so I know what that feels like. So it's about um, recognising, okay, these are the habits. And you can't always do – you can't always fix it, especially if, you know, if you've got sick kids or you've got a your dog's unwell or something like that, you, you can't always control uh, the situation. But you can then – ask yourself, okay, how can I work around it? What other of my habits um, can I change? And it's surprising. It, it, it can be surprising to look at some of the correlations. Like if you notice that when you sleep late, this is the impact. Or if you notice when you spend a lot of time on Facebook, this is the impact. Or when you um, read a book, an actual physical book versus just cruising on Netflix all night, what impact does that have? And making constant tiny changes trying things out, try it out for a week, try it out for a fortnight, and you never know there there will be things that will have a bigger impact than others. So for me personally, I can't really do much about my sleep deprivation now. It has a big impact on me. I find it hard to think when I'm tired and uh, there's not a lot of that's not in my control. So what I do try and do every day is I practice gratitude every day. I write a couple of times a day. I just sit and I write down things that I'm grateful for in that moment. Uh, I meditate even just five minutes, because I fall asleep otherwise if I meditate for longer than that, but even just five minutes or even just when I have 30 seconds of everyone is quiet, I just have 30 seconds of, okay, I'm just being present right now and just breathing. So that can be, um, that's a good one for me. And the other one is drinking water because I find that when I'm dehydrated, I get really frustrated and annoyed quite quickly. So staying hydrated is really important. So you just you try out different things and you work around whatever your challenges are um, and test things out, monitor, keep a mood in um, a mood chart, which can just be a every day. Just ask yourself, do I feel, you know, how angry do I feel today or how depressed do I feel today? And just keep a scale and just correlate it with your habits and what's That's working. A really, and what's really fantastic piece of advice. And I love correlating and writing. So you're right up my alley with writing stuff down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Ash, for coming on the show. Thank you, Corinne. It's been so much fun. Yeah. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too. Thank you so much, Ash, for coming on the show. Thank you all so much for listening. Please head to Vegan Neuropsychologist, their social media handle, to follow and like and support Dr. Ash on social media and if you would like to learn more about her you can find her at www.revolutionme.com.au otherwise i hope you're having a great week and i hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for your listening and i will see you all next week bye bags are packed are you ready to go this time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier day